We've been in a series called Acts, The Gospel Goes Viral. And if you've missed a message in the series, I encourage you to go online. You can see our website uh, posted on Facebook. It is celebratepeople.org forward slash listen. Uh, if you miss any of our messages in our series, you can also find them on the iTunes podcast app. The passages that we are about to read today as part of today's message are pretty intense. They are not hyperbole. If you've forgotten what that word hyperbole means, that would mean it's something that's made up. These are factual events that really did occur. You may have even read these passages before, um, but they may have not made very much sense to you. And so we just kind of skim over them and go on to the next thing. But as we've been talking, we've gone through the book of Acts. We've made it through the first several passages. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I hope that today the passage that you've read before that may have not made too much sense will be much clearer. Look at what Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35 say. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says, Great grace. Everybody say that. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands, make sure you understand there's plural language there, lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. What they did was they brought them that the proceeds of what was sold, and it says in verse 35, and they laid it, at the apostles' feet, and then the profit, the money, was distributed to each as they had need. I have a few statements that I want to make about this passage before we go further today so that we can really clearly understand it. The first thing you should know is these people were not living in America. When you read the Bible, you should read the Bible in its context of what was going on. That means you need to know a little bit about history. And in those days, they were not having a mortgage for a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house on a three-quarter lot. They, They weren't doing that. What they did, according to most historians, is that most of the real estate transactions were actually paid in full or they were passed down to heirs. Now, how they were paid in full is different. It didn't always involve money. It might be that I give your son my daughter in order to have more property. So there were other things not involving just money in these transactions. But theologians believe that the selling that was spoken of here involves parcels of land that they would have owned. Take, for instance, if they own 50 acres they would sell off one of the acres and say, hey, you can have this and build a house on it. They would take that profit and then go and bring it before the apostles. You've really got to have common sense when you read the Bible 
Because if they all sold everything, literally everything they had, where did they live now? And the plural inside of the Greek says houses and lands. So the Bible never tells us that they went to live in a commune or on a compound and all just lived happily ever after like hippies back in the 70s. That didn't happen. So you need to understand this as you walk through scripture that the logical conclusion is that there was a plurality of lands and houses. It's not like all these new believers just sold everything and moved in together. There's no evidence for that. So I want you to understand what we're reading before we get to the real meat of it in a second. The next thing is when it talks about them selling their lands and houses, this was not a scripturally ordained or spiritually mandated process. Nowhere in any part of scripture does it demand that you sell your house and give all the money to God's kingdom, his people, the church. Are you with me? Are you tracking so far? So I want to make sure that you understand that this was not a principle that was applied in all places and at all times. It was clearly just the solution for those who were in Jerusalem. There are some people in this world that I call social justice warriors. And they like to twist things that we believe in the Bible to fit their own understanding. They say things like Jesus believed in the redistribution of wealth. This is not true. Jesus did not, nor did he say that this was something that needed to happen all of the time. So I say context deepens our understanding of the content. You get an A today. So read the Bible, and when you read the Bible, pay attention and even use your mind. Third, this is really important, Luke does not say... Whatever belonged to anyone belonged to everyone. So I I want you to really understand what we're reading. Because some people have misread this and thought, well, that's really strange. I guess they all lived in a hippie commune and they were all filthy rich because they just lived with all that money and all together and shared everything. That's not exactly what took place. And the reason why I'm telling you all this is not just to expound on scripture, but to help you understand really, truly what's at stake When we read through a mysterious passage like this, Luke's point is not about private property. In fact, I'm really thankful that it's not about private property. Did you know that the Bible guarantees private property? We think that's an American concept. It's not. It's one of the commandments. The eighth commandment says thou shalt not steal. You can't steal if it doesn't belong to anybody and just belongs to everybody. Hello, are you with me? So we really do need to pay attention. So rather than abolishing private property, the Christians considered what belonged to them had been entrusted to them by God to serve his purpose. I don't, I don't know if you know any Spanish speakers in your life, but I had the pleasure of living in New Jersey and having many close personal friends who spoke Spanish and, uh, from different, uh, origins of uh, different countries of origin. And I remember in high school having to try to do a speed course in Spanish if I wanted to know what they were talking about. I had to learn and pick up pretty quick. 
But something I heard many times, and you've probably heard it in a movie or somewhere else, it's a common saying in Espanol. And it goes like this, mi casa es su casa. What does that mean? In English, it means my house is your house. Now, when someone says that to you, do they mean sit down at my table and sign over the deed to my property to you? No, that's not what they're saying. They're offering hospitality and saying, make yourself at home. I'm sure there's representative language like that in other countries and in other languages that just bestows that idea of hospitality. So this is what the Christian's attitude in Jerusalem was. And I really still think this is what the Christian's attitude today should be. That of hospitality, that of if I have it, I'll give it, that if I see a need, I'll meet it. So that's what they were doing here. And then the last thing to point out before we start moving through more verses is it says to each as any had need. As needs arose within the body of Christ, it was clear by this language that those who were considered spiritual brothers and sisters in the church took care of those needs. It was like that then, and it should be like that today. I can tell you from personal experience, in the loss of a job, I am very thankful for brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm very thankful for this church individually. I'm thankful for others who've assisted my wife and I in moments of our need. We didn't have to go anywhere else God met our need from within the body of Christ. And hopefully you have that same experience. But if not, in a moment of need, if you're humble enough to mention that need, God can meet that need through others. So I want to be clear about this. Government was never meant to subvert biblical generosity. Yes, we have a tax system. Yes, we have welfare. Yes, we have food stamps. Yes, there are people who are impoverished. Yes, yes, yes. But I want you to understand, government did not originate generosity. God did. And that should still be a signpost of the body of Christ. So today, the title of my message is Generosity and Fear. How do those things play out? We'll see in in the next few minutes, but it's important for us to understand that these are signposts. These are identifiers of what was happening in the book of Acts. So generosity and fear were present, and we'll uncover a little bit more about that. But we, as the body of Christ, need to do whatever is in our power individually and collectively in order to meet the needs of brothers and sisters, whether they be here in America, here in our own church, in church around the world that represents God's kingdom there, we need to be generous. God is generous. His kingdom is a kingdom built on generosity. And every person who calls themselves a believer ought to be generous. I know that I'm speaking or preaching to the choir Because every single person that I'm looking at in this building today is a generous person. And that's awesome. But we need to be challenged in moments where we see need to continue that generosity.
So let's read Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, and we see what plays out after this moment. It says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite and a native of a place called Cyprus. Cyprus is an island over near Greece, still exists today. And this man Barnabas that's mentioned is the same Barnabas who later becomes a partner with Paul. But I love that little, that little parenthetical there, that little statement that's put in by the author. He was, his name by birth was Joseph, but they called him son of encouragement. Wouldn't it be great to hang out with people who just encourage you? Wouldn't it be great to not hang around anyone who ever just tore you down, wore you out and made you weak? Wouldn't that be awesome to just have coworkers and family and friends and the body of Christ who just constantly built you up? This guy's character trait was encouragement so much so that they called him encourager. That's really what that is. So here's what it says about Barnabas. It says in verse 37, he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles feet. Continue reading into Acts chapter five. We go to verse one through 11. It says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Pay attention when you're reading God's word. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You could do whatever you want. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last breath. The Bible tells us this man, you could take it into normal language today, died at the altar in the church. And it says great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. If that happened today, I'd look to these three young men right here to carry him out and go and bury him. Now you say, pastor, are you talking about money today? Well, we're talking about generosity. I'm not even going to talk about tithing and what your requirement is. I'm not going to talk about your offering above and beyond. I'm just trying to help you understand the mystery inside of this strange passage where they did give some money, but they didn't give all money. They lied about it and God killed them on the spot. It's pretty intense if you really think about it. Look at what it says in verse 7. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. Uh, where's my husband? He told me he was going to church. He's not back yet. Three hours? Really? She came in and not knowing what had happened, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for this much. And she said, yep, for this much. 
But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband, because it took them three hours, are now at the door and they're going to carry you out as well. This is a strange day in church, y'all. So it says, behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down and breathed her last breath. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Well, that was nice. And here's the key. This is the kicker. Verse 11, and great fear. Twice in the same passage, the exact wording. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Do you think? <laughs> hey, honey, I don't think I'm going to church today. I heard two people died last week at the altar. Not cool. Can you imagine being one of the young men in the church thinking, well, I sure hope nobody else shows up and lies to the pastor today because I'm really tired of burying these people. This is not hyperbole. This really, truly did occur. So Barnabas, he sold his property and came to lay the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. And here Ananias and Sapphira sold their property. They lied about the prophets and they found themselves laying dead at the feet of the apostles. So why is this story in the Bible? Why, why, why is this important for us to understand? This is a pretty intense passage and it raises a lot of questions. But my hope is that you'll leave with some of those answered today. So let's talk through a couple important observations in the text. The first is this, and if you'll look at the screen, it is Ananias and Sapphira conspired together to sin. Why would they have done that? Peter clearly, listen to me, folks. Peter clearly said, while it was in your name, it was yours to do with what you wanted. When you sold it, you didn't even have to bring the money here. That was a choice you made. This is Peter's, this is layman's terms or my paraphrase of what Peter is telling Ananias. But Ananias and his wife Sapphira had determined to shortchange the dollar amount and to say, let's take an example. We have a real estate agent in our presence today. She's a member here in our church. Let's take an example in today's American economy. If I were to buy an acre of land, Miss Christine, how much in Clinton, Mississippi could I get an acre of land? No house, nothing. Fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. So that's if I came in and I said to my wife, Hey, you know what? I know we sold it. I know we're happy, but I really want to buy that boat. So when we go to church, I'm going to tell them we sold it for 7,500 because we need some of this money. They conspired together to sin and to lie. Their motivation seems to have been greed. The Bible doesn't say Ananias was buying a boat, but they had determined for some reason, and the only thing I can really assume is that they were greedy or that they didn't trust God or the apostles. If they had a need, they could have trusted 
that they could have had a conversation about that and said, listen, we sold it for this. We kept this amount. We're giving the rest to the church, but we really needed to make sure that this took place. They could have had an honest conversation, but for whatever reason, they chose not to. They kept back some of what they shouldn't and lied about how much they sold it for. So the logical conclusion for me is that they didn't trust God or his people. There are people in churches all over the place that don't trust God or his people. Number two, another thought in this passage, it says, Ananias allowed Satan to fill his heart. So really, even though we're talking about the sale of a property and we're talking about bringing the proceeds and they've seen that Barnabas has done this and others were doing this, they knew that there were needs. You think to yourself, what needs could there have been? Well, it wasn't an American economy where everybody who lived in a house who was an adult had a job and made money. You got to think it was a widow who lost her husband and now all she can do is sell something in the market and that's not enough to live off of. So she tells Peter and the apostles, I've got a need. I don't have groceries and they're making these needs be met this way. It was never a question of financial control. It was a question of heart control. I could preach a whole series on that, and I have, and I will again. It's all about the heart. It's not whether you gave 10 or 100 or 1,000 or a million. Hear me out. Ananias' heart should be filled by godly thoughts and godly actions. Why has he then chosen to allow himself to be filled with something other than God? To say another way, I would say it's not about possessions, it's about possession. It's not about the fact that he had a house or had land and sold it. It's about the condition of his heart and him allowing that temptation to give birth to sin. So we could easily point the finger at Ananias and Sapphira and say, look at you guys. But a better question might be, why do you and I allow ourselves to be filled with something other than God. Because we all do. It's really important that we see here that the enemy of God is at work. I want you to understand this. This is the first conflict that happens in this new flourishing church that's being built by the work of the apostles with the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the first mention of Satan. This is the first major issue. I wrote this in my notes and I think it's important for you to understand the downfall of nearly every Christian church in history outside of leadership's moral failures. Listen to me. Has been from within. And even in a leadership's moral failure that destroys a church, the problem is within. The enemy's strategy has always been to attempt to defeat and destroy from within. It's always about control. It's always about control. Satan was trying to thwart the work 
of the Holy Spirit that was being done to grow the church and he was using dollars and cents to do it. He still does. I've met some people like that. But don't allow him to use you as his pawn. And I would tell you to take it one step further. Don't spend time with those who you consider friends or acquaintances within the church. Don't spend time with them if they are choosing to allow themselves to be pawns of the enemy. Well, how can I be a pawn of the enemy? I can do that by carrying bitterness. I can do that by carrying unforgiveness. I can do that because I'm mad they didn't paint the room the color I wanted. The whole churches have been destroyed because sister so-and-so got mad that they took her name off of a room's wall. I'm so glad I'm not in that church and I pray I never serve in a church like that. Those are the hardest churches ever to serve in. The repair, the time that takes to repair that and to move forward to a healthy place is much further than I have life left in me. Don't allow yourself to be a pawn of the enemy. Somebody does something to you in the church that you don't like. They approach you with a negative attitude. They see something in your life and point it out and you don't like that they said it and you get mad at Sister Sally and you're going to stay home for the next six weeks until whatever happens, happens. That's not the way mature believers handle life. That's the way an infant in diapers does. Don't be that guy. Okay, preach there for a little bit. Let me go back to teaching. Number three, Peter tells Ananias that he hasn't lied to him, but to the Holy Spirit. He's pointing out to something that's very important that we don't talk about very often, but I I really have it in my sights to do a series later this year on authority issues and to talk about this because it's something important. We call this spiritual authority. So Ananias wasn't just lying to a human who was installed by God to be the authority in that place. He was lying by virtue to God himself. Peter is saying, you may believe yourself to be lying to a man, but that man is God's authority in that place. And what you do to him, you've done to God. And if you're a Bible believing mature Christian, you've ever read the statement that Jesus made when he says, when you gave them this, you did it in my name. It's as you done it to me. The reverse is true as well of the bad stuff. You destroy God's church through gossip and lies and betrayal and those things. You're doing that not to Sister Sally. We don't have a Sally, so I keep mentioning Sally. Bless you if you're out there, Sister Sally. We do that not to Sister Sally, but we're actually inadvertently doing it to God himself. Having been the man of God in a place before and having been maligned, betrayed, lied about, I've taken great comfort in the fact that their issue was not truly with me, but with God. And if that's the truth, then God's got this. He's going to handle this. I'll put it to you like this. When you honor authority, God's blessing is on you. Teenagers know that. When they honor their parents, everything's great in the world. You get allowance, you get to stay out late, you get to do whatever you want. But when you dishonor and when you disobey, come on. Sometimes we look at the Bible and we forget common sense. 
All throughout his word, honor and obedience are important. When you attack authority unjustly, a curse comes upon you. But when you honor spiritual authority and God's instituted authority in your life, a blessing rests on you. Another thing to notice is this. Sapphira shows up looking for her husband because he's been gone for those three hours. She then corroborates the story. She then backs it up. Peter says, did you sell it for this amount? She said, yep. She is just as guilty. In the American system of law, we have this thing called, well, we, there's a couple different terms, but aiding and abetting a criminal. That would be contributing to the crime. Well, I was just the getaway driver. I didn't steal that bag, that bottle, that whatever. I'm no part of this. Yes, in fact, you are because you are part of that relationship. Sapphira and her husband, in those first few verses, it says they conspired together. Birds of a feather flock together. So if you don't like birds that gossip, don't spend time with them. You got the point. I'm just saying you could fill in the blank with any of those things. Spend time with those who lift you up, who encourage you, who challenge your growth in Christ. Don't waste your time being around those who don't because the truth is it all rubs off. The good and the bad. Two times in that passage, Luke repeats this phrase, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So the question is, do we fear God? Do we really truly fear God? I often hear people explain the fear of God more along the lines of respect or reverence, but I have something to tell you today you may not realize. The word fear and God appear hand in hand more than 300 times in scripture. So we make a grave mistake when we downplay that because scripture is, is full of examples of the blessing and benefit and the positive nature of fearing God rather than it being a negative thing. And I think what we've done in Christendom as a whole is we've gone the route of Jesus is my friend, friend forever. He's closer than a brother. He's this, he's that. And at some point we've eroded and we've gotten to the place where we're too casual when it comes to our relationship with God. Fearing God is good because it saves you from sin. I'm scared of him and what he'll do to me. It's good. It saves me from caving into my own sinful nature because I have a healthy fear of God. In fact, if you've ever heard this phrase used of someone, and I've heard it of many people, I've heard it of, I'll give you this example, Amy's grandmother. I hear amazing stories about her as a woman of faith, still with us today. And I hear this phrase, she's a God-fearing woman. You know what that does for me? That makes me know I can trust her more. That makes me know that if she fears God, surely she's going to be honest and tell the truth. She's going to keep her word. What she says she'll do, she will do. Being a God-fearing person is a good and beneficial thing. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, we're not going to read that, but it, it's a whole chapter on sin. It says that our chief sin is that we have no fear of God. 
like the capital, the big one, is that we stop fearing God. I can tell you from personal experience, being raised as a pastor's kid, this can seem normative to me. In my teenage years, I didn't have fear for God. Then God really shook me and woke me up. I had a few supernatural experiences that really scared the hell out of me. Okay, And scared me into heaven. I hope you weren't offended by that. But that's exactly what I feel like it was. Is that it was God drawing me in. And causing me to have a healthy fear of him. That I had long lost. But there's a distinction between the concepts of what I would call. There's two different types of fear. There's a slave's fear. And there's a son's fear. A slave's fear is a fear like a prisoner would have in a torture chamber. Scared that the tormentor or the jailer or the executioner could come at any moment and hurt them. That dreadful anxiety that causes their heart to race because they're frightened about that clear and present danger of someone who hates them, who's malicious towards them, who could come and whip and torment them. God is not malicious Can he end us? Yes. Jesus actually says, don't fear what they can do to your body. Fear God because he can do stuff to your body and your spirit. That's my paraphrase. But a son's fear is far different. It's worlds apart. It's the kind of healthy fear that a child has for their father. Think of a child who has tremendous respect and love for his father or for his mother. And they really want to please them. We pray that we raise children like that. I believe I could say that my wife had this sort of fear and I did too growing up in the homes we grew up in. But there's a fear or an anxiety of offending the one we love. Not because we're afraid of torture or even of the punishment, but deep down, and maybe many of us lose that as we mature, But deep down as a child, we're afraid of breaking mommy or daddy's heart and displeasing them because they're the source of our security and our love. This is the kind of fear you and I should have for God. It is right and holy and proper to fear him. I have a few takeaways I want to share with you about this story that helps us kind of wrap it up today. The truth is, Scripture never encouraged or demanded wealth redistribution. You cannot be a Christian and say that the Bible espouses wealth redistribution. It does not do so. It does mention meeting the needs of those who have needs. But check this out. Listen to me close. Even in heaven, there will be inequality You might want to write that down and think about that. The Bible says, and Jesus says, that he will reward according to what you've done. I already know that Billy Graham has a greater reward than I do. How could I dare think that a God who loves and gives and and is just would give me exactly what Billy Graham gets when he gets to heaven. 
He's given me a smaller sphere of influence and I'm trying to use it for his glory. But I know that there's inequality. That's not wrong or bad. That's been part of God's system. So you should really pay attention. The next thing is the Jerusalem church had this creative solution, but their method was not meant to be a universal standard. The next is generosity is the standard of God and his character, his kingdom and his people. I love that we're a generous church, that we give to things like the Ronald McDonald House and support them during the Christmas season, that throughout the year we're contributing to missions and causes here in Jackson and around the world. I love that and believe we should even increase it. In fact, your pastor's prayer oftentimes is, Lord, bless us greater so that we can bless them in a larger and a greater way. I want to be that. I want to be that light and that, that powerhouse for those in need. And generosity is just, it's another contributing factor that made the gospel go viral. It contributed to the gospel's message being proclaimed throughout. Imagine how quickly the message would die if you heard that Christians are stingy. How could they be stingy if they have a God who loves and is generous? No. So it works together wonderfully. The deeper question today is this for each one of us. Do you fear God? I've been challenged by just in the development of this message. Lord, help me to fear you in a way that's right and holy. Help me truly to make sure that my heart never strays or wanders from that. Look at what Psalm 25 says. It gives us this promise. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. Psalm 34 verse 7 God himself, the Bible says, it says the angel of the Lord, but that is God himself encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You're in trouble, fear God. He'll set you free. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Would you stand with me today? So this story of Ananias and Sapphira is a very interesting one. But it lacks that principle or that element of fear for the Lord. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me today. And as the worship team just sings this last song before we dismiss, I want you to consider your life. Consider the amount of fear that you have in your life, the good, righteous fear of God. And if you feel convicted today that maybe you're not where you should be and that you've treated him and your relationship with him casually and that it's kind of gone on that slippery slope, then ask him today to help you to have more fear in him. Father, I pray that Celebrate Church would be known as a generous church and a church that fears you. In the mighty name of Jesus.